Hello and welcome to the fourth in our series of podcasts on the whiplash reforms. If this is your first Waitman's podcast experience, then welcome. Where have you been? I'm Glenn Thompson, technical lead for Mainstream Motor here at Waitman's, and I have something of a special interest in all matters relating to the operation of both portals affecting motor. I'm head of the motor sector focus team at the Forum of Insurance Lawyers, FOIL, and I've just been appointed to the MOJ OIC advisory board put together by the MOJ and tasked with reviewing how the OIC portal is working in this immediate post-launch period. As with our third podcast, I will again be your host as we look this time at how fraud is catered for, if at all, by the OIC system. To remind you, we've so far discussed the reforms generally, podcast one, liability and statements of truth in the OIC portal, podcast two, and then the question of indemnity in the portal, podcast three. Those podcasts remain available to listen to if either you missed them or you wish to revisit those issues, just head to our website. Today we will consider that portal is designed to deal with fraudulent claims. I'm delighted to be joined on this occasion by Jeff Turton. Jeff is head of motor fraud here at Waitman's and known throughout the industry for putting fraudsters to the sword time and again, achieving some game-changing results, the most recent of which being the case of Hod Roge v Storm of London and Aegeus, with which many of our insurers will no doubt already be familiar. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Glenn. Jeff, let's jump straight into it then. First question, will insurers see more or less fraud with the OIC, do you think? Well, it's probably uh, first worth saying at the outset that one of the primary objectives of the reforms was to reduce fraud. And that was hoped to be achieved uh, in several ways being, there are of course no costs recoverable for those affected by the increase in the small claims limit. So there is or there ought not to be an incentive from a cost perspective to pursue claims, fraudulent or otherwise. We're also seeing reduced damages for whiplash. So those who might encourage others to pursue claims and take a percentage of damages will take a portion of a much smaller damages sum for whiplash. So they could be less interested in facilitating the making of such fraudulent claims. We're also seeing a ban on offers for whiplash without a medical report. It was generally in the past considered that allowing such pre-med offers, as they are known, encourage those who have not actually suffered injury to pursue claims. It's also worth saying that it is hoped more generally that the numbers of people claiming for minor injuries arising out of RTAs will reduce. And with fewer claims, fraud becomes easier to detect and to deal with. Okay, so the objective is that, you know, insurers will see less fraud, but will they actually, you think? Well, it's still very early days and that remains to be seen. There are some problems or challenges with the OIC, in particular, which could perhaps facilitate the making of fraudulent claims. So, for instance, if, as is desired, most users of the portal are unrepresented, and the absence of claimant solicitors means that the initial triage and weeding out of fraudulent claims is lost. Those handling obvious fraudulent claims as insurance companies or defendant law firms might not 
appreciate it, but most claimant law firms will undertake some level of scrutiny of new or potential clients unless they are complicit in pursuing fraudulent claims. And most, I would hasten to add, would not. Claimant law firms want nothing to do with fraud. Now, there is no initial filter in that way if the claimant is unrepresented. So what will that mean? Less scrutiny? Does that not mean more fraud? Well, insurers are currently reporting to us that they are reviewing a proportionately higher number of cases in their fraud teams than before. However, this will not stop some fraudsters having a go, especially if it is perceived by them that insurers are less motivated to scrutinise claims which are low in value and come with no cost liability for an insurer. In terms of the types of fraud, the risks are likely to be one, opportunist frauds, so LVI or phantom passenger claims tacked onto genuine incidents, two, increased layering with the likes of credit hire, which had already grown in recent years, but which will continue to grow as organizations that traditionally made their money from payout claims will look for alternative ways to bolster their incomes. Three, tick box fraudsters. So those that will tick all of the injury boxes in the portal in order to inflate the amount they receive. Four, portal escape artists. So claimants that will submit creative injuries such as tinnitus in order to try and get a claim out of the portal and into a cost-bearing area. And five, paper or computer-based scams. And by this, I'm thinking about so-called professional fraudsters that will bombard the portal with claims arising out of entirely fictional sets of circumstances in the hope insurers will simply wave them through unchallenged. It's also important to bear in mind that fraudsters are likely to be buoyed by the belief that if they're met with a denial, well, they can just go away with no costs or other consequences. But wouldn't an insurer exit the claim from the process due to you know fraud or fundamental dishonesty if they consider that they've received a fraudulent claim? Well, of course they could, but they would have to be confident that the claimant has no right to pursue a claim because if they are wrong and they drop a claim out for that reason, the claimant would, if they kept going or coming, be entitled to much more in fixed costs because of the fraud response they received. A plain denial, on the other hand, allows the insurer to turn the claimant away and see what happens next. If the claimant continues with the claim, then it becomes a question of gathering evidence to prove that the claimant was not in a third-party vehicle, for instance. That initial denial buys the insurer time to investigate and collect evidence. And don't forget, the fraud, stroke fundamental dishonesty or technical buttons can be pressed at any time. So insurers can ensure they have the evidence to back their stance before proceeding in those ways. Okay, so to take a fraud, fundamental dishonesty position from the immediate response to the claim would be unwise, do you think? No, not at all. But it is, as always, and always has been, a question of evidence. So if, for instance, an insurer has dash cam footage or other cogent evidence to prove that a claimant was not present in a third-party vehicle, then letting the claimant know that you are aware of that uh, from the outset is the right 
uh, tactic. Okay, I'm with you. So what else might insurers want to think about, Jeff, from a fraud perspective? Well, overstated injuries, of course, this is an injury portal. Exaggeration being chiefly claims for exceptional circumstances uplift when there are no exceptional circumstances. Uh, These low level frauds require more subtle but equally comprehensive response tactics. And insurers have, of course, quite a few tools at their disposal now, uh, databases and the like. Plus, they can put the defendant's driver's version of events to the medical legal expert, and should they do so whenever appropriate to combat that natural temptation lots of claimants will have to describe the accident as more severe than it was. They should also take a clear and deliberate position in response to exceptional circumstances uplift. Lots of claimants will just ask for the full 20%. Insurers should understand the circumstances in which they will consider 20% to be justified. When will an insurer allow 15%, 10% or even 5% for instance? Being deliberate in approaching accident circumstances overstatement and claims for exceptional circumstances uplift will allow savvy insurers the opportunity to halt subtle, often invisible damages drift encouraged by potential fraudsters. And finally, taking cases to court won't cost much and will help cement your robust approach to even the lowest level of fraud, particularly when dealing with claimant law firms and CMCs who remember you. Let them know that you are not an insurer to be messed with. Jeff, that's brilliant stuff. A fairly comprehensive rundown there. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Well, there you have it, folks. Fraud in the OIC portal. I hope you found that useful and interesting. As users venture deeper into the OIC process chronologically, it's timely, I'm sure, that the next two podcasts will focus on quantum. So with the very next podcast, you will hear from Liam Maguire, a partner here at Waitman's and our head of motor. He'll discuss use of Medco, the tariffs, exceptional circumstances, uplift cases in much more detail, along with valuing other injuries and rehabilitation. The podcast after that will then focus on vehicle-related damages, non-protocol vehicle costs, or NVC as it's known, and credit hire. You will hear on that occasion from Charlie Williams, a partner again here at Waitman's and our head of credit hire. All that's left for me to say at this point, Dennis, thanks again, Jeff, for your insight into how insurers can expect the OIC portal to deal with fraud. No doubt it'll be interesting to look back in a year's time and assess where we are with fraud in this portal. As I say, look out for the fifth and sixth podcasts, which will be released soon, but for now, take care. If you want to discuss any aspect of the reforms or issues relating to fraud in particular, then please do not hesitate to contact either Jeff or myself whose details appear at the bottom of the screen. Thank you for listening.